When you take a close look at where you live, which buildings and sites around you are important enough to preserve for future generations? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how some communities in Latin America are getting an economic boost by preserving their historic sites for tourism. Some of the sites are probably the only way out of the terrible poverty that some of these communities face. We'll also look at the exciting role art installations can play in amplifying our experience outdoors all over the USA. And what's really rewarding about site-specific art is that as the space around it changes, so does your interpretation of it. And we'll explore the sacred places that make the state of New Mexico an intriguing road trip destination. You know, New Mexico is an interesting place because its history came from the south, as opposed to much of the United States where the history came from the east. Take a fresh look at the world around you in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Sometimes it takes an artist to prompt us to look at the world around us with a renewed appreciation for the beauty of this earth. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear about a few of the exciting site-specific art installations that dot the USA. And a veteran road tripper helps us explore the many sacred corners of one of the most visually distinctive of the 50 states, New Mexico. Let's start with an update on preserving important sites in Latin America with the head of projects at the World Monuments Fund for the entire Spanish and Portuguese-speaking world. Norma Barbacci is here to update us on endangered sites in Latin America and Iberia that have been added to the WMF's biannual watch list. Norma, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you've got a pretty big beat. You're covering all of the Spanish-speaking and Portuguese-speaking world. Is that basically what it is, Latin America and Iberia? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much everything between <laughs> Mexico and Easter Island and Spain and Portugal. And there's been a, a, like over a dozen sites on the latest 2014 list that are from Latin America. What are some of the most yes. striking and urgent sites on the list? Uh, they're all important, of course, but which are a couple that you'd like to mention that are closest to your heart? Well, there are many. I mean, it's really hard for me to pick favorites, but um, I'm from Peru, and I'm going to start mentioning a few sites from Peru okay. uh, just because of that. We have Chan Chan, which is a World Heritage Site in the north of Peru. And that, is a, to me, is particularly interesting, not necessarily because of the threats within the site itself, which has this group of threats, but it's actually because of the threats that are affecting the buffer zone which is the space that surrounds the, the protected area and is between the city of Trujillo and Chan Chan. And we picked that site because we thought it could open up a discussion about, you know, what a buffer zone is and should be, hmm. um, not just for this site, but for many other World Heritage sites. So, so we why would you need a buffer zone? Why is a buffer zone important? It's a zone that sometimes is allotted. It permits certain types of um, of development, certain types of uses that are not strictly protected as mm -hmm. it would be within the World Heritage Site. We have several sites in Spain sort of regressing that had a buffer zone that was being protected and respected, but some of the developments that were proposed within those zones mm. were greatly affecting the you know the city, they say the historic city to be protected, like so in basically the case of you, Seville. So basically, you've mm -hmm. got a very historic part of Seville that needs to be protected. Which part would you That's be talking correct. about there? The historic center of Seville, and, uh, and we had, or there is, it's actually being built, a tower that actually competes with I've La Giralda. I've heard about that. It's a big bank tower yes. or something. Now, exactly. there is a very good case where you have a heart for the heritage and the culture, and somebody else has a heart for getting uh, a financial return on the real estate that they own. Right. This is a battle royale here, and it doesn't take a lot of money right. to stand up against those money interests. It was really difficult, and in fact, I think we kind of lost that battle. And it wasn't just us. It was many, many groups around the world that were actually advocating for stopping the construction, including the UNESCO World Heritage Center, yeah. Um, I was just in Sevilla. I was mm -hmm. just in Sevilla, yeah. Norma, and people were mourning. Yeah. They were just in a yeah. state of shock because they've lost the uh, integrity of their skyline, of their history and their heritage, because somebody was able to get the permission to build a skyscraper right in the middle of it all. Exactly. And and mm. we knew of alternatives that could have alleviated that, that problem without limiting development. We're definitely not against development. Right. There's just We're, sensitive development is, exactly. is a nice option. Talk about Barcelona, Park Güell. Everybody who goes to Barcelona mm -hmm. loves Antonio Gaudí. 
Park Guell uh -huh. is a beautiful These are site. actually the Guell pavilions. Uh -huh. um, so there are actually two pavilions there. One is a stable and the other one is a gatekeeper's lodge uh -huh. that were built for Guell, for the same patron. And actually, those are part of the university. They belong to the University of Barcelona at this point. Part of this um, nomination is actually we would like to help them, you know, carry out some of the, the conservation activities, but also uh, help them develop more like a tourism development plan. Mm -hmm. So to make them a little bit more accessible. There's mm -hmm. a case where tourism can be harnessed as a positive Correct. a positive force and, and help them possibly renovate the building so that it can survive into the next century. But this is a Gaudi, exactly. it's, it's an example of Gaudi architecture, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's actually, there's several others that are part of what we could call, you know, a hidden Gaudi. And we would like to sort of bring those mm. up to, um, you know, That's to a beautiful the thing. public knowledge. Yeah. Norma Barbacci is helping us connect with Latin America, Spain, and Portugal right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She oversees preservation projects in that region for the World Monuments Fund. Their website is wmf.org. Norma, I was fascinated to read about the work you're doing in Coimbra in Portugal with the university library there. It's such a, a fragile building, and I remember as a tourist going in there, and they were trying to protect the humidity and keep all the crowds from messing things up, but it was pretty ramshackle and pretty uh, sloppy the way it was being guarded and protected. I remember the, the guard had a giant key and he opened the door and he let just piles of people in. How do you recognize precious sites like this? And then what is your hope in the case of the library? Well, in this case, as you mentioned correctly, water infiltration, humidity um, are tremendous threats to, you know, ancient and, and precious uh, books. In the case of the library, what we're hoping for is to be able to support an environmental control project. We are collaborating with the University of Coimbra, mm -hmm. um, and we're hoping to be able to, you know, raise funds for such project. You know, if we are able to raise funds, we would support a technical project and also an implementation phase, which would actually apply some of these recommendations. Spain and Portugal, where you work, are relatively wealthy countries, but when you work with poor countries in Latin America... How do they respond mm -hmm. when an organization from New York City says, you should put in humidity control? Is, is there sort of a, a challenge you have in getting countries that are in desperate economic straits to embrace the values that you see in protecting their endangered sites? Yes, in some cases, there might be a little bit of um, pushback, thinking that we are sort of imposing our views you know, within our local community. But for the most part, I think we're pretty good at trying to convince them and, and demonstrating that protecting some of this um, heritage is actually an economic vehicle for development. And especially my, around my beat, some of these sites are actually probably the only way out of the terrible mm. poverty that some of these communities face. Um, mm. So we try to develop sites to provide an economic resource for the local communities, as well as, obviously, mm. defending their, their identity and and You know, that's and, interesting. Memory. That's yeah. interesting, because I was in Costa Rica recently, and there, clearly, the way they've taken care of their environment is good for their economy, because it's a, a very popular destination for tourists who enjoy nature. And then if you go to Nicaragua and El Salvador, you can see they have more challenges in this regard, and... Would that be something that the World Monuments Fund would, would become involved in? Yes, that's correct. I mean, you mentioned Costa Rica is actually a very different example from the rest of Central America. Um, we have several projects in Guatemala, for example, where lack of resources and some of the increasing violence are actually making any kind of you know projects there a little bit you know more complicated and also is diminishing tourism, which mm -hmm. in, in such cases would be a good resource to generate re, you know, funds and resources for the conservation projects. Norma, do you see tourism as generally a positive thing or a negative thing for these uh, sites of great importance from a heritage point of view? Tourism could go both ways. You are very familiar with the case of you know, cruise tourism in Venice, which mm -hmm. could be a really serious threat. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the same hand, cruise tourism for the site of Kiriwa in Guatemala is actually a very good thing. Hmm. They look forward to having tourists from the cruise ships come and pay the fee so they can have more resources for the proper care of this Maya site, which is actually quite a, a beautiful place. So, yes, tourism could be, you know, if it's not managed properly, could be a problem. 
But if it is managed properly, and especially if some of these tourism dollars actually revert to the mm-hmm. local communities and in particularly also to the site itself, yeah. uh, then it could be a very good thing. So that's the challenge, is to capitalize on tourism, but do it thoughtfully in a way that's good for the uh, maintenance of the sites of importance to their local that's heritage. Correct. You know, it is so inspirational to think of the work that the World Monuments Fund does, and I know you've put long hours and, and years into this. With all your work and your commitment to this issue, what is an example of a triumph that the World Monuments Fund has enjoyed that makes your work particularly gratifying? Well, I'm going to have to mention a recent watch site, which is the Ruta de la Amistad, which is a 1968 site in Mexico City. It's a sculptural uh, group that was created for the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Mm. And it was listed on the 2012 watch list. And since then, we were able to, um, well, raise some funds, but then also help the local nominator, which is a, a private trust, to actually complete um, not only the restoration of, of the individual sculptures, their public sculptures, but also their relocation within a reconfigured um, mm-hmm. route. And besides you know, the actual uh, recovery of, of these um, pretty famous sculptures, including some by um, Alexander Calder, they also created um, a community program. The Mexico City uh, residents had forgotten about Ruta mm-hmm. de la Amistad, and now they are sort of like rediscovering this new site, which is something that they, they, some of them never knew they had, and it was actually internationally worthwhile. So that's, that's something we're kind of proud of. Um, that sounds like a good example of what the World Monuments Fund can accomplish. Yeah, that was, that's a good one. And uh, another one is a site, is, is the San Pedro de Andahuaylillas Church and Town in Peru. It's just outside of Cusco. We started the project with the restoration of the church, which is a beautiful Baroque church considered the Sistine Chapel of America. But also, um, we're proud of that project because it also included the protection of the entire town as a historic center, as well as a training program for uh, youth that now um, these 11 or 12 uh, young people are actually quite dedicated to the protection of Andahuaylillas. Mm. And they decided they're not going to move to the big city. They're actually going to stay and use their talent to actually protect um, the historic town, the church. Wow. And they have become great advocates for this uh, within their communities and the surrounding areas. You know, that's a great partnership Mm. between a, a global organization like the World Monuments Fund based in New York and local people who really uh, understand the value of of their local heritage. Norma Barbacci, thank you so much for sharing with us the work of the World Monuments Fund. And to learn more, we can go to wmf.org. Best wishes with your work, Norma. Thank you. While all those Latin drums are clopping like a jumping jack, I'm hopping without stopping. Ole, South America, take it away. In just a bit, we'll hear how the Spanish heritage of New Mexico is an important part of the scene there today, where roadside crosses, shrines, and adobe churches are among the many sacred sites that are woven into the desert landscape. Up next, we'll explore the power of site-specific outdoor art to transform how you look at the world around you. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. As a lead editor for one of the world's top publishers of books about the visual arts, Amanda Renshaw has no shortage of material to consider for their massive art book called Art and Place, Site-Specific Art of the Americas. 
Its 800 photographs chronicle many of the most significant outdoor sculptures, buildings, murals, petroglyphs, temples, cathedrals, parks, plazas, and even subway lines from Toronto all the way to Patagonia. She joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about some of the stunning site-specific art that may be just around the corner from where you live. Amanda, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what is site-specific art? Well, site-specific art can be the most exciting art on the planet. It's art that's made for a specific place uh, where the subject or the meaning of the work is closely intertwined with the location in which it's situated. It's where the artist has had to adapt, had to shape, had to reform the work to fit the site. And it's art that you can find in the most unusual places. You can find it in open fields, in libraries, in opera houses, in caves, Hmm. in state capitals, even in hydroelectric plants. I think there's a hydroelectric plant actually included in the book. I noticed Um, that, the uh, Simon Bolivar hydroelectric plant in Venezuela. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful (laughs) stuff. And you wouldn't wouldn't think about finding art in a hydroelectric plant. We're talking about giving an art an extra dimension, really, by connecting it with the site. What's a good example that comes to mind as you edited this book where art connecting with the site makes it just so much more meaningful? Well, as you can hear from my accent, I'm from the old world where many of us have this sort of incorrect, completely wrong notion that one of the things that makes Europe different is that there's an artwork around every corner. And as this book tells you, it's not true. It's absolutely not true that there are amazing, spectacular, uplifting and outstanding examples across North, South and Central America New Yorkers, for example, have art practically on every street corner and site-specific art at their fingertips. I mean, if you take a walk down Broadway, all the way down to Lower Manhattan and on the corner of Liberty Street, there's a 20-foot high, enormous red cube that's delicately balanced on one of its corners. This is a sculpture by Izumu Noguchi. Uh, It was installed in 1968, and it seems to be a kind of contradiction. It's heavy but it's also extremely lightweight. It's a beautiful balancing act. It's so beautifully balanced that it looks as if a butterfly landed on one side of it. It might topple over. (laughs) There's a hole, a cylindrical hole, lined with grey metal that's bored straight through the middle. And as the hole isn't visible from every angle, you kind of feel the need to walk around the cube to see what each facet is like and what might reveal itself as you make your way walking around it. Hmm. Now, it's an impressive structure in its own right, and it would be extremely impressive if it was in a museum, but it has an even greater dimension because it is site-specific, and what's really rewarding about site-specific art is that as the space around it changes, so does your interpretation of it. The Red Cube is one block east of Ground Zero, and it's also in the heart of corporate and banking district and actually when I saw it for the first time which was only 18 months ago it made me think how fragile the world can be Mm. and how important it is to keep some kind of I suppose balance in our lives Mm. and right opposite just sort of on the other end of the spectrum on the other side of the street is another sculpture by Marc de Souvereau which is called Joie de Vivre which is French for the joy of living And this is a soaring 70-foot, also painted red sculpture that points up into the sky and makes you look up. It forces your eye to stretch along the red shafts of core 10 painted steel to the tops of the buildings above and emphasizes that sort of cavernous feeling of being right down at ground level and amid the skyscrapers. So that's what site-specific can really do if it's in the right place and it's uplifting. And having experienced those pieces of art in their appropriate intended site, to see them in a museum would be a heartbreak after knowing how right it is to have them out in the elements. You're right. They would completely lose their exuberance, their meaning, their excitement. Sometimes a museum can be a mausoleum. A sad but true uh, comment, I'm sure. Especially if you've just put together a 400-page collection of uh, coffee table, collection of all this great art in the Western Hemisphere. We're talking about New York right now, and uh, I noticed in the New York section you even had a page dedicated to a permanent sound installation, the noise of the modern world, right there on Times Square, which a lot of people might miss amid all the other noise. Absolutely. In fact, there are so many amazing site-specific works in the city 
by artists like uh, George Siegel and Christopher Park, Roy Lichtenstein at Times Square subway station, and amazing earth art, earth artworks by Walter de Maria and Soho's unknown if you don't know exactly where they are, but incredibly uplifting when you get to see them. Amanda, you're from Britain, and uh, I'm wondering, as you've studied and, and worked on art in the Western Hemisphere, is there anything distinctive about art of the Americas compared to in Britain or Europe that has a certain spirit or exuberance that you noticed as you put art in place together? I think that site-specific art is uplifting, in fact, where good site-specific art is uplifting wherever it is, whether it's outsider art, whether it's art that's by artists that you would find in a museum, if it's truly responding to the space, whether mm-hmm. it's the Sistine ceiling or the Watts Towers in Los Angeles, they can be just as affecting and uplifting as each other. Now, the Watts Tower is interesting. That's a good example of, uh, you know, neighborhood or folk art. And it's uh, sort of a proud statement in a neighborhood that's long been synonymous with poverty and violence and political strife. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Amanda Renshaw. She's the lead editor of Art and Place, site-specific art in the Americas. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Nicole's on the line in Dallas, Texas. Nicole, thanks for your call. Hi there. I just wanted to mention two of my favorite site-specific art uh, pieces or groups of pieces. One is Fair Park in Dallas. It was um, built as a world fair site in 1936 to commemorate the Texas centennial. And so all the buildings in the park are this fantastic art deco modern style, and some of them are just really over the top decoratively. And many of the buildings have murals about Texas history, culture, about the future. One of the murals looks like some kind of Buck Rogers space travel thing. Mm. There's sculptures. It's just I think it's like 70 acres that the, that the park takes up, and it's just really a treasure that not even that many people in Dallas appreciate, I think. It's so funny to have the opportunity to go back to the 1930s and see what people then saw when they looked into the future and to know that we're there now. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the other one that I love, I just recently discovered when I was in Philadelphia, an artist named Isaiah Zager has taken this, uh, real estate in on South Street and made it into this mosaic and found object wonderland. His mosaics are all over the neighborhood, but he's particularly taken this one property. The whole house is mosaic, basically, from everywhere you look. And then outside, it's all this other structure, this mosaic, that's multiple levels. There's all these found objects intermixed with all the mosaics. There's words and feelings, and it's just incredible, and it's something that somebody of any age could enjoy. You know, this is just such a good example of how we can get out of the museums and enjoy art that is site-specific. So Nicole's recommending uh, the Art Deco murals and the sculptures at Fair Park in Dallas and in Philadelphia, the Magic Gardens mosaic. Nicole, thanks for your call. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Sid is on the line in Atlanta, Georgia. Sid, thanks for your call. Thanks for being on, Amanda. I recently took a trip to Guadalajara, Mexico, and before that um, had been somewhat uh, knowledgeable about the Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, their wonderful relationship. And obviously he is is so well-known as a Mexican muralist. So when I got to Guadalajara, I was introduced to Jose Clemente Orozco, and the whole idea of mural art, uh, political art, is a fairly South American, Central American in origin. It seems to have had some of its birthright there. Would you comment on um, how, what you feel about political art in the mural form? You're referring to the, the murals in the public buildings in the state capital in Guadalajara by Rothko, yes, which are extraordinary. I mean... As you have said as well, and I I also mentioned before, this kind of site-specific art is the most engaging and making it political art makes it even more enriching and more passionate and more interesting, I think. And there, the Orozco and the Riveras throughout Mexico are absolutely extraordinary works of art. One of my favorite images from the trip and seeing the Orozco murals was um, 
taking a shot of my daughter lying down. She's an art history major, and she was lying down on a bench looking up at the ceiling of the Orozco murals. And uh, it was such a delightful new way to experience art. That's the man of fire? Yes, yes. Yes, which is the sort of dramatic culmination of the entire thing with a figure sort of ascending into heaven. That must be a great picture. Yes, <laughs> it, it really it really was. Thank you so much for being part of this effort and uh, giving us more to think about as we travel and view art. Thank you, Sid, for Thank your call. You. Okay, bye-bye. Yes, Amanda, I think uh, anybody going to Mexico would want to put the murals of Diego Rivera on their list, even if they're not aware of what he's done. These murals are just thrilling to watch. They are. I mean, we mentioned just before the University Autonoma, mm-hmm. where he, with a group of assistants, painted the most incredible fresco cycle, which are, I think they cover about three and a half thousand square feet of walls. And they're panels that examine good government and bad government, showing peasant and industrial workers working in harmony for the greater good of society. So, again, as we were saying before, extremely powerful, partly because they engulf you. You are completely immersed in them. And they are beautifully done. He really adapts the work to the space. There are these circular windows in the room that used to be, I think it was formerly a chapel. And the way the figures and the sun, I think it is, is painted around the windows and the figures curl slightly around the windows. So he really has adapted the figures and the subject matter to the space. And as you walk in it, you are completely immersed. Now you can, get that, you can get that same sort of uh, worker's fervor and inspiration in the United States with the Diego Rivera murals at the Detroit Institute of Arts. Absolutely. A very, very similar, all-engulfing, very, very moving cycle of painting. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're considering the many types of stunning visual scenes you can find all over the Americas with Amanda Renshaw from Faden Books. She's their editorial director and served as lead editor for their art book called Art and Place, Site-Specific Art of the Americas. Their website is faden.com. That's spelled P-H-A-I-D-O-N. Amanda, I was just down in Nicaragua and El Salvador. I noticed a lot of the political art down there has been painted over because there's a different party in power. And we have that interesting dynamic going on in the United States where murals that some people would say have a socialist kind of uh, bent are in risk of being painted over. Did you encounter any of that in your uh, research for Art in Place? Yes, I mean, we had certain criteria about what could be included. We created a database of probably about 2,000 sites, but we had to have certain rules, criteria for inclusion, and one of them was that the work had to be permanent, and two, that it couldn't have been moved. Hmm. still had to be in the place that it was made for. And of course, there are many political works that have been moved or have been painted over that couldn't be included in the work. There's, there are also performance works that couldn't be included. At the back of the book, we do include a section of key works that were site-specific that have since been destroyed or covered up or moved. Mm-hmm. One of them is actually a performance work that is by a German artist. In 1974, Joseph Boyce arrived at JFK Airport. He was wrapped in felt and taken by ambulance to the René Block Gallery. He stayed there for three days, just him and a coyote. And the coyote was chosen for its sort of special spiritual significance to Native Americans. And he also had a cane and a flashlight, and the Wall Street Journal was delivered every day. Whoa. So that gives a a whole new challenge for somebody like you editing an art book of what makes it and what deserves to be in a book. And I mean, it's a big question for you. What what art will be around next year for people to actually experience? Yes, well, there are some works in the book. The earliest work is from about 9,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that that will still be here. That's in a mm-hmm. sequence of caves that's on a remote cliff surrounded by an outstanding landscape with a sort of river running deep below it in a canyon in Patagonia in Argentina. I mean, who were the men or the women who stenciled their hands on the walls and ceilings of the rocks in these caves? Mm. These walls are covered with 
red, white and brown outlines of hands, very often left hands, so I guess their markers were mostly right-handed, the makers mm. of these. But who made them? What did they make them for? Mm -hmm. um, who were these people? What was their status in society? What do these pictures mean? You know, are they markings to say, I am here? Like sometimes we'd scrawl, people scrawl in toilet, you know, walls. Are they the hands of the sick, hoping they might get better? Or was the rock lucky? And the hands aren't the only things there. There are caves that also include paintings of hunting scenes with hunters attacking animals. And so why were they painted? I mean, these are things, as I say, that have lasted for 9,000 hmm. years. So hopefully they will still be there for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. And then the most recent work in the book is from 2012 by Jorge Pardo, who designed a number of sprawling buildings in Mexico, also that are sort of resplendent with patterned ceramic tiles and bulbous lamps that create this endless pattern and repetition of shapes and forms from room to room in this sequence of buildings mm. in Mexico. It's an amazing world yeah. of art that we can appreciate outside of the museums, art and place, site-specific art of the Americas. We've been talking with Amanda Renshaw, she's the lead editor of Art and Place, site-specific art in the Americas. Amanda, this is an eye-opener to think of all the art, ancient and modern, that's uh, not in museums but site-specific in our own hemisphere. If you were the national curator of site-specific art here in the United States, what would your agenda be? Well, I know that the World Monuments Fund has um, a very long list of sites that are on watch. Um, and many people can, anybody in fact, can fill in a form which they send in to the World Monuments Fund to recommend that various sites should be on watch. And I would go through that list in great detail, as they do already, to be honest, mm -hmm. and help raise money for the conservation and the protection of works of art but that would be protected, but in such a way that we could still visit them. Mm -hmm. And you, you'd recognize the mission then of the World Monuments Fund to make sure this art, mm. because it's not protected in museums, is there for future generations to enjoy. That's correct. And, I mean, just to perhaps refer back to the book, I mean, a book, however good it is, can never replace looking at and experiencing the original. Mm -hmm. And what we try and do with the book is to hope that it serves as an introduction and a guide to those of us who cannot visit well, these many, many extraordinary places. And this book can take you from top to bottom in our hemisphere and enjoy art and place. Site-specific art of the Americas. Amanda Renshaw, thank you so much for being with us and best wishes with your work. Thank you. At its high desert altitude, the natural light of New Mexico has a unique way of amplifying the landscape in surprising ways. Up next, Christina Nielsen takes us to some of her favorite sacred places in New Mexico. Our number is 877-333-7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. You don't have to drive very far out of Albuquerque or Santa Fe to be inspired by the landscape and the sights you'll find all across New Mexico. When she lived in Taos, Christina Nielsen ventured out to experience dozens of remarkable natural settings and preserves, as well as shrines and retreat houses from a variety of spiritual traditions. She describes and photographs 88 of these destinations in her book called New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Christina, thanks for being with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. My pleasure, Rick. New Mexico really is a unique place in that regard, isn't it? What, what is it about New Mexico? I think the thing that strikes me most strongly is, you know, New Mexico is, a, is an interesting place because its history came from the south as opposed to much of the United States where the history came from the east. You know, we have the, the Spanish and the Mexican forces coming up into New Mexico and pretty much 
making contact with the Native Americans, and that was sort of the genesis of this book. When I started to do it, I found that the sanctuary part of this book uh, was primarily, of course, Hispanic and Spanish. The sacred places were the Native Americans, Hmm. and so you had those two forces coming together. And then the other part of the book, the retreats, was, not surprisingly, the Anglos, the Anglo, the white people that came in as a third wave. So, Christina, you, I think you nailed it there. Uh, when we think about a lot of the United States, it's the westward movement. And then when we think about New Mexico, we're thinking about spillover from Spanish culture moving up from Spain and how that overlays with the indigenous cultures. Would that contribute to the fact that there's so much that has a sort of a sacred and a spiritual dimension for sightseeing in New Mexico? Absolutely. One of the things that New Mexico demands is that you recognize this rich overlay of landscape in proximity to these different cultures. And that's what makes it so fascinating for me in terms of when you're crossing that landscape. Now, you've got 88 places that you recommend in this one state in your guidebook. And in New Mexico, you can be all alone in a vast and and immense desert. And uh, what, what is that like in New Mexico? Oh, well, you know, when when you are out there in in the wide open spaces, I like to think it's landscape is something that feeds the soul. It opens us up to our senses in ways that are very, very different from when we are in a more civilized place. And again, in New Mexico, you have these intermixes. You have the mix of the Spanish, the Hispanic, and the Native American those rituals are placed upon the landscape, and you cannot be in, in one locale in New Mexico without being vibrantly aware of the other forces. For instance, let me let me give you an example. If you go to Three Rivers Petroglyphs, it's a place that has 21,000 petroglyphs in this very, very um, nondescript place, and suddenly you walk up on this hill and you are surrounded by petroglyphs that are drawings that are made by chipping the stone as opposed to drawing on it. Okay, and how old would those be? These would be uh, thousands of years old. So you have 21,000 of those. Then you walk a little further down the road and you walk into a little chapel, again, that's nondescript. I just happened to find it. This is the way I did this book, sort of following my nose. And you walk into this chapel called Santo Nino de Atocho. So right there you have the Native American, and then suddenly you walk into this Hispanic chapel that is one of the most amazing little chapels I have been in anywhere in the world in terms of all of the ornamentation inside. And it is devoted to Santo Nino de Atocho, which is a little saint of the unjustly imprisoned or those that are hit with divine illness. So you're saying that there's, what we've got is this uh, sort of a rich overlay of a previous culture and then another culture and putting their spiritual spots in the same place. You do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Nielsen and her books, New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Diane's on the phone from New Mexico in Santa Fe. Diane, thanks for your call. Hi. I've lived here in New Mexico quite a while, and uh, I make it a point to go up to the various Pueblos. Our Pueblo Indians were unconquered, really, by the uh, Spanish when they came north from Mexico. And as a matter of fact, they threw the Mexicans out for about 90 years until they resettled the state. And when you go to the Pueblos, particularly for Christmas dances and things of that kind, you see that the Christianity that is being practiced in the little churches is really heavily influenced by the Native culture. And I'm interested if you found uh, instances of how one culture has influenced another and changed the, the expression of the sacred. Well, absolutely, there, there had to be an integration. You know, eventually, with the Pueblo Revolt, of course, I think is what you're referring to in 1680, when the Native Americans overthrew the Spanish that had been coming in and doing some pretty disastrous things to their culture. In the next 10 to 15 years, the Spanish came back, but it was a, it was a very different integration at that point, and the Native Americans did allow Christianity onto their pueblos. 
What I observed that was most fascinating was the side-by-side approach. If you go to the Taos Pueblo on New Year's Eve, it's one of the most fascinating things you'll ever see. It starts with the Mass in their little, their little chapel. And then suddenly they come outside and they're carrying the Virgin. There are Native Americans with guns in the beginning. This happens at sundown. There's a procession that goes through the Pueblo. And suddenly you begin to get this Armageddon feeling. The sun is going down. The rifles are going off to protect the Virgin. They have lit huge bonfires all around the Pueblo, which are smoking and firing. They're volcanic. Some of these are over two stories high. And you are immersed in this scene that is overpowering. And that, to me, is is one of the best metaphors for what you're talking about, this integration. I'm so glad you mentioned this, because it is the most remarkable thing, and it's so original and authentic. I I mean, it's just astounding. You come out of that church, and you're confronted with a two-story high bonfire, mm-hmm. and these rifles that are being fired are more than 100 years old. It's just a remarkable ceremony, and it is the combination of both cultures that makes New Mexico such a special place, I think. Diane, yes. thanks for your call. You're welcome. Christina, when we're talking about the places to see in New Mexico... You mentioned so vividly walking through deep and and rocky canyons and wading on broad and narrow waters. Take us there just uh, vividly, if you could, uh, so we could be inspired to go there ourselves. Well, you know, one one of the most amazing places that I have been to is called the Bosque del Apache, the woods of the Apache. And it is on, of course, the Rio Grande River. And it is a place where hundreds of thousands of migrating birds gather every winter there are sandhill cranes, which are very prehistoric. There are over 100,000 snow geese. I put this in the book as a sacred, a sacred event, a sacred place, because if you are there in the wintertime, there is a mass ascension of these birds twice a day. They come together in the evenings, and then they ascend in the morning. And it is, you know, it takes you to a different place. Also, Christina, in your book, you talk about spend time in solitary spiritual journey, and you have even have a solitude rating on the <laughs> 88 sites, which I thought was fascinating because I've, I do. I've rated a lot of hotels <laughs> and restaurants, but I've never thought about giving them a solitude rating. <laughs> what is it about solitude that uh, factors into your spiritual journeys in New Mexico? One of the things is that I think that quiet and darkness are two endangered species that no one talks about. And another thing I talk a lot about in this book is is darkness as well. But, you know, that, that silent place where we can sit with just the sounds of nature and let that soul begin to work on us, where we can hear those voices that we can't hear amidst all the chatter of our daily life. Christina Nielsen's guiding us to her favorite sacred places in her former home state of New Mexico right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She includes photos and blog entries from her travels on her website, christinanielsen.com. That's spelled N-E-A-L-S-O-N. She also writes about her road trip self-discoveries in Drive Me Wild and Living on the Spine. And Christina's the author of New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Christina, New Mexico has both a rich pre-colonial history and also a colonial heritage. Talk about the colonial heritage from a sightseeing and a traveler's point of view in New Mexico. When you are traveling through northern New Mexico, especially, but all over New Mexico, but in the heart of New Mexico, every few miles that you come to, you come to beautiful sanctuaries, most of them adobe, red, soft curves, these gorgeous buildings that invite you in. Some of them, the walls are so thick, they're several feet thick because they were at one time forts when people were settling and there was problems with the Native Americans. These sanctuaries, if you will, you walk into them and there's a quietness because of the thickness of the walls, the adobe. They bring you in and they sit you down in this quiet, soft space. They are every few miles. You could travel throughout New Mexico and just do that 
and not have anything else on your schedule and fill up many, many weeks. So you've got the the Catholic, uh, Mexican, colonial sort of heritage, and then you have the pre-Christian, Native American heritage, all mixing it up. Let's yes. talk just for a minute about the early Christian heritage. What are the dates? When do the, the first conquistadors come in? When, when do these first Christian missions come in? You're talking about the 1600s for the most part. Some of them were earlier than that, but uh, those early trade routes started to happen in the 1600s. So I understand from your book, the oldest shrine to Mary in the United States is right there in Santa Fe. Yes, the major trade route from Mexico City came up to Santa Fe, and you have these churches there that have actually been filled with accoutrements and carvings that came up from New Mexico that originated in Spain. How did the Native American culture mix it up with this Catholicism coming in from Mexico? Was it a a comfortable fit? Was it a brutal fit? Uh, What's your take on that today from what you'd look at as a sightseer? It was a brutal fit. It was a case of the Spanish coming in through Mexico and overlaying their religion on the natives, which in and of itself was one level, but then you had the level of them taking away the things that were sacred to the natives, like the drum, like the kivas. Now, what is a kiva? You, you talked about a kiva in the book. Describe that to our listeners, please. A kiva is a, is a round, large hole, if you will, in the earth that is various sizes, but it's a circle. It can be 20 feet across. It can be 50 feet across. If you go to Chaco Canyon, you will find kivas there that are just humongous. It is thought that the kivas were the ceremonial places of the Native Americans and that that's where they would go into. Kivas represented they were in the earth dug out, said to represent the womb of the earth. So as travelers today, we can actually find some of these kivas, and if so, do they have any of their uh, mysticism intact? They do, especially the ones at Chaco Canyon. Chaco Canyon has hundreds of kivas, and that's why they think in the latest interpretations of Chaco that it was a ceremonial center that peoples came to from hundreds and hundreds of miles, all the way from down to Mexico, all over the Southwest, to do ceremony at Chaco, because they haven't found very many signs of daily life there. No dumping grounds that would normally Hmm. be in a place like that. But what they have found is many, many kivas and astrological maps and petroglyphs that point to the heavens. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Christina Nielsen, and she's written a book called New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Barbara's on the line from Texas. Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm just in love with New Mexico myself. I've, I've been there lots and lots of times. I have a place in Rio Dosa. Mm, and nice. Just enjoy everything about the state and exploring all the unbelievable areas there. So, Barbara, we, you know, I've been talking with Christina here, and it seems like you can just drive down the road in any which way and come upon these places that are centuries old and have been very important to people long ago and still have a, a powerful feeling today. What's your experience with that? I have, have explored quite a number of those places, and the petroglyphs are just amazing to see. I, I didn't really know that much about the history of New Mexico, but just in exploring with my family and asking questions and learning about these things, it's, it's really wonderful seeing these carvings in, in stone that these people so many years ago had made. It was their, I think it was probably their way of communicating. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm a novice at this kind of thing. I'm just fascinated. But they leave it. kind of mysterious messages just to us centuries later. And, Christina, what, what can we learn from a petroglyph? One of the great things about the petroglyphs, and Barbara, you'll probably agree with this, it's, it's the mystery that's behind them. There are theories about what the petroglyphs are about, but no one really knows. And that, to me, is the heart of what is special about New Mexico. There are so many mysteries everywhere you turn. Christina, something else that adds to the mix in a very poignant way, I would think, is the fact that there's still a strong, living Native American presence. And... They may be Christian, but they would have lots of pre-Christian and and their own cultural and religious uh, 
dimensions to their way of living. How does that add to the mix for a traveler? Oh, that, that mix is incredibly strong. Up and down the Rio Grande are pueblos, and every one of the tribal communities has their dances that resonate from the season. Uh, the public is invited to go to many of those dances. You can go and you can watch, and it takes you into another world. The outfits people wear, the sound of the drum, the women standing there with their hand-woven blankets, in their prince's boots, their white boots, just for ceremony. Barbara, did you ever stumble upon a ceremony at a Pueblo? Well, not, not exactly a, at a Pueblo, but I have been to powwows in, like in Albuquerque and places that were just fascinating to see because the current Native Americans dress in the style that their historical relatives had. And that is fascinating, the music. Mm-hmm. Now, Christina, yes. are these are these crass, uh, Kodak moment kind of touristic things? Or are they actual, intimate, for real gatherings that tourists are welcome to sit quietly and observe? I wouldn't call powwows intimate, but they are dance competitions is what they are. So the different tribes come together, and they share their dances, and they do this for several days. Barbara, thanks for your call, by the way. That's it's great you're, you're to welcome. get your take I'm on this. I'm enjoying listening. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Christina Nielsen. Her book is New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Now, you said this book is about for all those who seek. What are they seeking? I think they're seeking a sense of self. One of the things that we do not get a chance to do is to find out who we are outside of our roles, whether that role is mother or father or our professional role. One of the things that travel does is it takes us beyond ourselves to that place where we can find out who we are outside of those roles. Christina Nielsen, that is a noble crusade in our fast and ever faster world here in the United States of America. Thanks so much and uh, best wishes with your um, sharing the importance of finding solitude and sanctuary, specifically in New Mexico. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York, the BBC in London, and KNAU in Flagstaff, Arizona for their help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.